This morning we find ourselves between the Testaments. So we concluded the last message of the Old Testament portion of our Walk Through the Bible series. And this morning we're going to pause and hopefully remember all that we've gone through. It's been over a year uh, since we've begun this series. And I want to do a little bit of review before we enter the New Testament. I want to ask you this morning, could you, now that you've heard all these messages from all the books of the Old Testament, could you show me Jesus in the Old Testament? What do you think? I'll let you sit on that for for a moment. Could you show me now Jesus in the Old Testament? Because that's been the whole point. So if you can't, We've got some work we've got to do to go, to go back, right? Because Jesus is the message of the Old Testament. He might be concealed, but he's there. You know, as I've said before, the Old Testament, as, as scholars and others have said before, is Christ concealed. The New Testament is Christ revealed. But Christ is there. Christ is the message of the Old Testament. We have seen week after week, book after book, that man cannot save himself, right? I was, I was tempted to preach a, a message this morning, damned without grace, because that really is the reality. But instead, I titled it, Where is Jesus in the Old Testament? But it's the same thing. We are damned without grace. Think about it. God creates everything. This beautiful creation, it's all very good. He creates Adam and then Eve in his image to live and enjoy the paradise of the garden. Just don't eat this one tree, this fruit from this one tree. Could they keep that? I mean, that sounds like a really easy one to follow, doesn't it? Could they do it? No. All the sin and misery, the death, the angst, the persecution, the depression, the anxiety, the terrible bosses, broken marriages, that all came out of that one act of eating that forbidden fruit. Okay, what happens next? Okay, so they get kicked out. God's gracious to his people again later on. He doesn't completely wipe them out. And What do they do? What do we learn in Genesis 6? Man's heart is entirely evil. God destroys the earth with a flood, but he saves Noah and his his children. How do they repay God? Well, they fall into more sin after a short while. Even one of the grandkids gets cursed, Canaan and Ham, right? After that, what happens? God calls Abraham, who was a moon worshiper in the Middle East. He saves him. He gives him children. Only one of them walks with God. The other one walks away, Ishmael. What happens to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? They're messing up all over the place. 
They're contending. They're fighting. They're quarreling. They're committing adultery. They're committing murder. They get enslaved in Egypt because the brothers sold one of the brothers into slavery, right? And God rescues those brothers by grace, but then they go into slavery for 400 years. God rescues them. God shows mercy to them. What do they do? They're angry at Moses for saving them. They whine and whine and whine. They rival probably the most petulant child in the desert. They saw the waters of the sea parted, and they doubt that God will give them food. So a whole generation dies. A whole generation dies in the wilderness. But then God brings them into the promised land. He wipes out nations before them to let them go in. Surely this is the time when the people of God will get it. What happens? They sin and sin and sin. Book of Judges. And their sins are even worse than the sins of the prior generation. This down, 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 down. They said, well, if we had a king, then we, everything would be good. They choose Saul. How'd that go for him? At the end of his days, Saul's going to the local, uh, the local psychic, you know, to, to talk to dead people. He's wiped out. David raises up. Surely David's the one. David kills another man so he can sleep with his wife. David's got blood on his hands so he can't build the temple. There's got to be somebody else. How about Solomon? Surely this is the one, the wisest man on all the earth. What happens to Solomon? He gets hooked up with a thousand women. 700 wives and 300. Talk about problems, right? (laughs) Domestic quarrels. What do those pagan women do? They lead his heart from the Lord. He dies in apostasy, the wisest man on the earth is not wise enough to lead and deliver God's people. So the prophets come. God raises up prophets to do synacts, miracles, to preach the word of God, to call them back. And what do they do? They stone the prophets. They persecute them. They despise them. And they continue in their in loving their sin and being just like the nations. So God vomits them from the land. After 70 years, as God foretold through the prophet Jeremiah, he's going to bring them back. He uses one evil pagan empire to wipe out another evil pagan empire and send his people. He uses pagans to call them to go back to the land to build the temple. Surely this is the time when the people of God will get it. But what did we discover last week in Malachi? They're sinning just as badly as ever. They're just as hard-hearted as their forefathers. Man is absolutely damned without grace. Man cannot save himself. 
That's really a dominant message of the Old Testament. But in the midst of all of that, we see grace. There is a thread of grace, a red thread, we can call it, that runs through the whole Old Testament that prepares us for Christ, that speaks about Christ and our need for a Savior. And that's what we're going to focus on this morning. We need Jesus. That is the Old Testament message. And I want to help you to be able to see where Jesus is. So if I ask you at lunch today, can you show me where Jesus is in the Old Testament? You've got a few places. You know, I think we all hate when the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons come knocking on our doors, don't we? But they at least, they don't have good theology at all, of course, but they can point to texts. How many times are you put to shame when a cult leader knocks on your door and you can't respond? So I want you to be equipped. And that's what we're going to do this morning as we look at where is Jesus in the Old Testament. Okay? So I want to show you this morning, just to use a mental image, four mountaintop texts or peaks that you can point at to find Jesus. And I'll give you some New Testament connections. Okay? And these texts show four promises or covenants that God made which are fulfilled in Jesus. Okay, so I'm going to be like your tour guide this morning. That's been the intent of this Walk Through the Bible series. I want to walk with you through the scriptures, show you the big idea of each book of the Bible. And this morning, like a tour guide, I want to walk with you and point out the big vistas and tell you the names of those peaks so that you can go and tell others as well. So I want to show you four key texts in the Old Testament that you can use to point to Jesus as you bear witness to him in this world. So here we go. The first mountaintop is Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15. As we find ourselves in Genesis, we find ourselves in the depths of humiliation because Adam and Eve had one simple rule to follow and they couldn't do it. And so they're in the middle of being cursed by God. And yet in the midst of this curse, the grace of Jesus is foretold. In Genesis 3.15, God says, I will put enmity between you, he's talking to Eve here, or to the serpent, excuse me. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So which is the fatal blow? Some translations say crush. The heel or the head? The head. Satan's going to do a lot of damage to the people of God. In fact, John will say in his first letter that there are two people really in the world. We don't really think there's not Norwegians and Swedes. There's not 
uh, it's not Americans or Brits or Indonesians or Australians or fill in the blank. There's two kinds of people. There's two races. There's the children of God and the children of the devil. And right here in Genesis 3.15, there's two offspring. There's Satan's offspring and there's the offspring of the promise. The, Satan's offspring, there's, they're going to do a lot of bruising. They, they might even do a lot of what looks like head crushing. But remember what Jesus said to the disciples is, fear the one who can throw body and soul into hell. Right? They, they might kill us, but they can't touch our soul. So let's connect Genesis 3 then to the New Testament. We read in Hebrews 2, verse 14. Hebrews 2, 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So Jesus is coming to destroy the devil. And in Jesus' first coming, he destroyed the devil's power over death. That is... Jesus rose from the dead, giving us all a resurrection hope because our resurrection hope is through the power of Jesus' resurrection. But not only did Jesus come as the serpent crusher, we can call him, but he's called his body, the body of Christ, the church, to be the serpent crusher too. Did you know that in Romans 16.20, Paul says the God of peace, evoking Genesis 3.15. Paul says in Romans 16.20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So much so that actually on the day of judgment, we are told that the people of God will judge the nations along with Christ. So I titled the Genesis sermon Gospel Beginnings because it's here at the very beginning, even amidst the curse that Christ is promised. There will be an offspring of Eve that will be the serpent crusher and who will mark out the people of God who likewise will take part in that crushing of Satan's kingdom on the day of judgment. And that's why we don't take vengeance out now. Right? Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. That's why in this time of waiting, we're to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. But on the day of judgment, it will be a day where the kingdom of darkness will be annihilated 
under the feet of our Lord and under the feet of the redeemed. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So Genesis 3.15 is our first mountain top that we can point to to see Jesus in the Old Testament. Now the second mountain top. Now as your tour guide here, I want to point you to Genesis 12.7. Genesis 12.7. It's in Genesis 12 that God meets with Abraham. And it's in Genesis 12 where we first read of this covenant promise that God is going to make. And I'd like to read that to you. It's such a key text. Genesis 12, and I'll read starting in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then we go down, look down in verse 7. As Abraham passes through the land of Canaan, And the Lord appears in verse 7. It says, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. In Genesis 12, we read the beginnings of what we call the Abrahamic covenant, which is expounded in chapter 15 and chapter 17 as well. But in Genesis 12, we find this moon worshiper named Abram. You know, he's one of the guys who would go out and read the stars and worship the moon. That's who the Lord chose to be the patriarch of the people of God, an old moon worshiper from the Middle East. And he calls him and he says to Abraham, I am going to make you a great nation. I'm going to make you so great that all the families of the earth, all the families of the earth will either be blessed by you or cursed by you. Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. And the symbol of this promise is going to be this nation that emerges from the land of Canaan. And in verse 7, the Lord appears to him and says, to your offspring, I will give this land. So who then, I'm going to ask you, Who is God talking about? Who's the offspring? Is it the nation of Israel that's in the land of Canaan, even today? Who is it? Who's the inheritor of the land? Write down this New Testament text, Galatians 3.16. Galatians 3.16. In Galatians, Paul is dealing with Jew and Gentile issues. Who's better? Who's worse? Is there a first-class citizen in the church and a second-class citizen? Are the Jews the first-class citizens and the Gentiles second-class citizens? And he's showing that everyone is the same in Christ. In fact, he's saying that by faith, you become a child of Abraham. By faith, you become a child of Abraham because Abraham is the man of faith. 
And he has to deal with the relationship of the law in that, which was a big problem, the law of Moses. How does the law of Moses fit in? We, we, we'll get to some of that when I get to Galatians in this series. But at any rate, who is the rightful heir, right? The Jews are saying, we're the rightful heirs. We, we have preeminence in the church because we have the law of Moses. And we're Abraham's <laughs> children. Thus, obviously, we are first. But Paul says, you are not Jew. You are not the offspring of the promise. Even you Jews who believe in Jesus, you are not first the offspring of the promise. Paul, citing and pointing back to the Abrahamic promise, in this promise that Abraham's offspring would inherit the land, says in Genesis 3.16, now the promises, Galatians 3.16, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. So Genesis 12.7 is talking about Jesus. We could read it thus in Genesis 12.7, Then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to Jesus, your descendant, I will give this land. And again, to reiterate, the reason we become offspring of Abraham is not by biological descent, but by faith in Jesus. Earlier in chapter 3, Paul says in Galatians 3, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. Genesis 12, 3. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. The way we get transferred from being the offspring of the devil to the offspring of Christ is by faith. And Jesus is the heir of all things, and therefore he has the right to bestow his inheritance on us. So the second mountaintop is Genesis 12:7. So we've seen in the first mountaintop we saw that Jesus is the garden promise. In the second mountaintop we can see that Jesus is the Abrahamic promise. Now let's look at this third mountaintop which is 2 Samuel 7:16. 2 Samuel 7, 16. And here we'll see that Jesus is the Davidic promise. Jesus is the Davidic promise. David experienced a lot of hardship and a lot of rebellion within his family. You know, he even had, how would you like to have a son who tries to kill you? You know, is tough goings for David. Everyone's looking to David who really was the high point of Israel's Old Testament kingdom. But it's not looking so good for David. Nevertheless, in 2 Samuel 7, the prophet 
Nathan comes and gives David the word of the Lord. And in 2 Samuel 7, David has promised an eternal kingdom, that there's going to be a son that sits on his throne who will rule the kingdom forever. And in 2 Samuel 7, we read, I'll go go up to verse 11, and then 16 is where I want to focus on. But starting up at verse 11, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. In verse 12, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you." And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So as we read this promise, we, of course, think Solomon. Okay, Solomon's the next son, right? Surely this will be when the kingdom is established. And as we know, that was not true. And God is speaking of discipline here. God's going to discipline all these sons that come from David. But there's going to be one son who receives discipline, but not for his own iniquity. And that is Jesus Christ, who is the rightful heir and son of David. And it's his house that will be established forever. 2 Samuel 7.16 is a key mountaintop for seeing Jesus. And the New Testament connection is this. Luke chapter 1 verses 32 and 33. Luke chapter 1, verses 32 and 33. In Luke chapter 1, the angel Gabriel comes down and speaks. The messenger of God speaks. We read in verse 26, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to the city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph and of the house of David. That's a key thing not to miss. Of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob, and of his kingdom there will be. No end. We see in Luke, through the angel Gabriel, that Jesus is the offspring of David who would sit on the throne of his kingdom forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. 
Finally then, the fourth mountaintop from Jeremiah 31, 31. Jeremiah 31, 31. This is the last mountain I'm going to point you at this morning. In this fourth mountaintop in Jeremiah 31, 31, we see that Jesus is the new covenant promise. Jesus is the new covenant promise. In the midst of pretty terrible days as God's people are like section by section being taken off into exile, a kind of brutal exile being led out even by fish hooks through the mouth, Sometimes hands being chopped off. I mean, the brutality of these ancient pagan kingdoms is, is unimaginable. And in the midst of this, as Egypt and Assyria are warring with one another for dominance, and Israel's the battle is like the battleground in between all of that, the Lord's starting to exile the people of God. And everything seems quite dark. The people hate Jeremiah. The king's tearing up Jeremiah's scrolls and burning them. Nevertheless, God still promises grace for his people, for his true people. And in Jeremiah 31, 31, we read, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, in the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. This idea of covenant is something that is foreign to us. I think the only time we think of a covenant is maybe you buy a house in a neighborhood where you have to keep a covenant, like keep your lawn mowed and the, and, the, and the flowers you know, watered, things like that. Otherwise, we don't really think of the idea of covenant. But covenant was everything in the ancient uh, Near East. The covenant was the way you established the way things are going to be. You know, one of the, the, the things that uh, was a challenge for me and still is living in a foreign country like Norway is there's a lot of unspoken rules. There's a lot of things you, you should just... No. I'll give you an example. A few years ago when I was driving around, I got pulled over by the police. I was driving through, through Centrum here, and you can go this direction down the road. I forget the name of the road. You can go this direction down the main drag. You can't go this direction up the main drag. But there's a sign that, says, that basically says um, this sign does not apply to buses or taxis. In my mind, since we had an electric vehicle and you can drive in the bus and taxi lane, I assumed wrongly that you could drive through there. 
And so the, I got, Deborah was with me. We got pulled over. They were very nice. And they let me off with a, with a warning. So it was really great. But it was kind of an unwritten, you should just know. Okay? Just because this applies to you, the bus and taxi thing here doesn't mean it's going to apply to you over there. Right? And in every culture, uh, not just Norway, in every culture, there's kind of unspoken rules and, and as well as written rules and obligations, of course, as well. But in the ancient Near East, the covenant set the rules and the parameters. Okay, this is how things are going to be. But God's covenant with Israel was being broken again and again and again. The covenant with Moses. Sometimes the prophets call it the covenant with Levi. They were breaking the, 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 the sacrificial system that they were supposed to set up. They were perverting it. They were neglecting it. They were breaking it time and time again. But God says here in Jeremiah 31, a new covenant I am going to make with you that you can't break, not like the old one that you broke, even though I was your husband. You know, Israel was committing adultery against their God. Emphatic, unbridled adultery with, against God. So they're looking for a new covenant that will not be broken, where their sins will be forgiven and remembered no more. And in Luke 22, we find the New Testament connection to this new covenant promise, where Jesus in the upper room gathers the disciples together. They celebrate the Passover meal. He breaks the bread and says, This is my body, which is given for you, for your transgressions and sins. And then he takes the cup. And in Luke twenty-two twenty, he says, And likewise, the cup after they had eaten it, he said, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus is the new covenant promise. And all the things, the giving of the Spirit, the bringing of the gospel of the nations, the uniting the people of God together, is all wrought through Jesus' blood sacrifice that we celebrate on Easter Sunday and that we ought to celebrate every Lord's Day. All the covenant promises are fulfilled in Him. That's why Paul can tell the Corinthians all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. So I've shown you four covenant promises. I don't have time. If you want to read more on the new covenant, you can go to Hebrews 8.8. The longest citation of an Old Testament passage in the New Testament is the new covenant. And you can read about that in Hebrews 8 where we see that Jesus is this mediator of the, of the new covenant. I just want to simply say that all of these covenants we've looked at are one and the same. They, they keep, they're all tied together. God's not making random disconnected promises. All of these covenant promises build on one another. And Jesus is the connection to all of them. So I want to conclude by just asking you now, are you ready to show others the view? I, I sh- I've shown you the sights of the Old Testament over the last year. And I've, and I've shown you the big picture of each book in the Old Testament. And this morning I've shown you th- four mountaintops that, to point you where you can see Jesus. 
and where you can help others. So are you now ready to show others the view? I think you probably should go home and study and think on these passages. I had a professor in college who showed me these mountaintops. And that's, that image has stuck with me ever since. Memorize these texts so you can take people to Christ, even in the Old Testament. That you can outshine the cults and the false teachers that come knocking on your door. Just in closing, on this idea that Jesus is the message of the Old Testament, recall Jesus' words on the road to Emmaus with his disciples. Remember in Luke 24, where he says to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. No. The whole Old Testament points to Jesus. I just showed you four places this morning, but you've seen in this series, we're looking to Jesus again and again. That's why we sing the Psalms as Christians, because they're about Jesus. That's why we, the Old Testament's so important, because it's about Jesus. And then Luke goes on, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And that's my prayer for you. And said to them, thus it is written, that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So the whole Old Testament, in one way or the other, points to Jesus, to his saving power, and to his resurrection glory. As you know, I've pointed to Christ week in and week out as we've walked through each book of the Old Testament together. And now I've showed you four mountaintops, okay? And my challenge to you now is to memorize the names of those mountaintops, where they can be found, so you can show others. We saw in Genesis 3.15 that Jesus is the garden promise. We saw in Genesis 12.7 that Jesus is the Abrahamic promise. We saw in 2 Samuel 7 that Jesus is the Davidic promise. In Jeremiah 31.31 that Jesus is the new covenant promise. In other words, we've seen that Jesus is the serpent crusher. He's God's eternal blessing to the men of faith, to the people of faith, that he's the king of the eternal kingdom, and he's the priest of the new covenant. And like his first disciples, he's sending us now to bear witness to his saving glory. But are you ready to show others the view? Are you ready? So these four mountaintop texts will help us to see for ourselves and to show others the glory and grace of Jesus Christ that was promised beforehand in the Old Testament scriptures and of which we're going to see in greater detail as we now begin our walk through the New Testament. So may he help all of us see Jesus and not only to see Jesus in these sermons, but to equip you so that with greater clarity, you can see and savor and share the glory of Christ with those around you. That's my prayer for you as we continue this series. Let's pray.